Last week, I uh, delved into some personal stories. When I was um, in pastoral training, the, uh, the pastor that was my mentor had a cardinal rule. He said, when you're giving sermons, you never use yourself as a sermon illustration. This is not the first rule that I've broken. So I'm going to break it again today. You know, there's just been, there's been so much happening. Last week, uh, for those of you who are here, you know, it, it was the zoo and it was the dog and it was the, the gorilla, the baby gorilla and all these kind of things. There were so many things that were firing personally for me that were bringing me into a real state of presence. This week, I had another experience, it, very different in quality, but uh, still kind of hammering me at the same point, at the same theme. And so, you know, I'm sorry, but you're going to have to listen to it. And uh, I, Thursday was hospital day for me. I was at two hospitals on Thursday. And the, the first hospital, I was at Chalk Hospital, which is Children's Hospital of Orange County in Orange. And uh, through a friend, I was referred to them. They're in need of, of they're trying to put together a spiritual support program. And, and uh, so I was referred to them as, as being able to help. And so I went there to, uh, I guess, interview, audition, just just talk to them and find out what's going on. And uh, it was a great experience, not what I was expecting at all. I got there, and uh, normally, you know, you find out, you go to the front desk, and you find out what floor they're on, and then you go up and you find them, and you pass the screener there. She just said, okay, they'll be down to, to collect you. And I was meeting with the director of volunteer services and, and uh, spiritual support, and then also Father James, who is a, a priest who is the manager of spiritual support. So I was going to meet with both of them. And I'm sitting there on, the, on one of the, uh, you know, the side chairs and, and just waiting. And, and all of a sudden I look up and here's this, this man in blacks you know, with a Roman collar on the far side, like waving real big and smiling at me because he figured I was the guy. And here comes this woman kind of walking toward me sort of painfully. She had a little bit of a, of a shuffle or a hip thing. Kind of looked like Nina, as a matter of fact. <laughs> Sorry, Nina. And she's all smiles, and she comes and she says, oh, you must be Dave. And I said, yeah. And she says, well, come on, let me, let me take you to, we're going to meet with Father James later, and he's still over there waving, you know. And, uh, and uh, we're going to go to my office, and we're going to talk a bit. And it wasn't up, it was down, because she very pointedly said, you know, because volunteer services is in the basement, right? And so we went into the basement and, uh, and went to her office, and, you know, just a small utilitarian office with a little table we sat at. And... She was so gracious, so unhurried, so calm. It was amazing. You think in a hospital, the frenetic pace of hospitals, you know, I I don't know what I was expecting, but she just disarmed me and changed the whole tempo that I was at after driving the freeways and, and, you know, getting to, to Chalk Hospital. And we sat there and talked, and she asked questions. She told me about what they're trying to do, and, and we just talked for, I don't know, half an hour, 40 minutes or more, and she didn't seem to be at all in a rush. And it was just great. We just kind of sat and talked. And then she said, okay, well, why don't we go up, go up and see Father James? And so we go up, and we go to another little office up on the, the floor that I started on. And he's in this other little office, and we sit down, and he just starts in as if I'm already part of the family, as if I'm already, you know, part of the team. And, and it's like, all of a sudden, I was thinking, does, does he know what's really going on here? Because he's telling me all this stuff. And, and it's just like, well, stop me if I'm talking too much. And, you know, about an hour into it, um, the, the first lady, the, the director, says, well, I have another meeting at four, which she didn't seem all hurried about. So, you know, is it okay if I duck out and you guys continue on? Because I want you to take a tour of the hospital. And so she leaves, and he says, well, let's go. And we just start walking through the hospital. The hospital's amazing. 
I've never seen a hospital like this. I've never been in a children's hospital before. But each floor is themed. You know, the basement is fossils on the floor, and then the next floor is sea life, and the next floor is, is animal life. And, and the colors are bright, and the thing is immaculately spotless. She points over to this glass enclosure, and there's a studio there an actual broadcast studio that they broadcast in-house to all the televisions and all the rooms. And the kids can come up and be on camera and they can interact with a host and do things. They have celebrities that come in. And I'm watching and here's a couple of kids, you know, completely bald because they're oncology kids. And they're in there and they're having the greatest time. And, of course, all their friends are watching on TV while they're doing this, which is really cool. They had an interactive place where actually actors from Disneyland are actually manning this animated turtle and interacting through cameras with the kids. And the kids are just going off and they're having the best time with that. We go through the wards and we're walking hallway after hallway. He's greeting everybody. Everybody's Father James. And they're greeting him and he's introducing me to people. Nicest hospital rooms I've ever seen. You know, wood flooring and all. It's, it's just amazing. And everyone that we met, everyone we talked to, also had that quality, seemed, seemed to be unhurried. We sat and talked to one of the nurses for a while, and she just said that Father James is my favorite, and she talked about her dedication to the kids and what she's doing. The whole thing was this amazing study in presence. They were so present, every single one of them. And they drew me in to what they were all about. And I became completely immersed. I felt like I had been there forever at this hospital, like I was a part of it, because I was so connected to what was going on, so focused in to the exclusion of everything else. And uh, he took me into the the chapel. They have a chapel, and it's it's uh, just a round, actually a round room, very small, but very, oh, very Dave-lit. It was nice and dim and had these blue walls that were glass and etched and just really beautiful. And he was talking about what they do there, how they have services of every type from Hindi to Islam to Jewish to, to uh, um, Protestant and Roman Catholic. And actually, he's an Eastern Rite priest paid by the Roman Catholics, which was kind of interesting. But he was telling me all these things. But as he was saying, he goes, you know, one of the things that we do here is we have debriefings for the families because the families sometimes are living here practically for weeks or months on end while their children are being treated. And if a child dies and they're leaving for the last time, they're just not ready to go. And it started to bring home the quality of the work that they're doing here, what it is that they're doing. For a family to be living with their sick child for months at the hospital, sleeping there, living there, and all the, the resources are there for them to do that, and then to have that child pass and realize they're leaving the hospital for the last time without their child. And it's that chaplain's job, it's that spiritual support person's job to stay with them and just be with them. Let them talk, let them say whatever they need to say for a period of time so that they can transition and go back out the door. It just really, that piece right there really brought home to me what was going on. And then he had a meeting, which he didn't see at all hurried to catch, but we, we parted and he gave me a card and I went out the door. And I knew that I needed to go right from there to Cedar sinai Hospital, which is in Los Angeles, and I, that was going to be a crazy drive. And I'm gearing up the navigator thing and trying to figure out how to get there. But even as I was doing that, 
I sort of took my peace and my calm and my unhurriedness with me. It followed me out of the hospital. And it's like I wasn't bothered by the drive that I was going to have to take. And when the traffic was bad, I just stuck with it and kept rolling. And when, we got, when I got off the freeway, it was just as long from the freeway to the hospital as it was from the hospital to, to Los Angeles. It was crazy how far. And I'm going through all these streets that look like an explosion of color and, and dirt. And I mean, going, riding through parts of L.A. is just like being in a third world country almost. It was crazy, you know, and you're trying to drive and I'm trying to listen to the person. And, but, you know, I get there and the hospital is just massive. I couldn't believe how big it was. What a distinction between Chalk Hospital and Cedar sinai Cedar sinai was somehow more serious, you know, darker, a little dirtier, you know, but just serious. You could tell it wasn't geared for kids. And it was an adventure getting from the parking structure to the room, but I finally got there. And the room was darkened, the, the shades were drawn, and uh, my friend that I was visiting, who's in her mid-80s now, um, I knew I had the acute awareness that this may be the last time that I'll see her, and I didn't want to miss a detail. I was just, like, laser-focused. I wasn't trying, it just, it was there. I, I can close my eyes. I can see every detail of the room and every detail of her. And she recognized me right away. And we embraced and kissed. And and uh, first thing she asked me was, what are you doing all the way up here? What brought you all the way up here? And I said, you did. It's only you, all about you. And she said, oh, isn't that wonderful? That's so wonderful. And we talked. And we just talked about the stuff we need talk, usually talk about. Not seven minutes later, she said, so what brought you all the way up here? You know? And I realized that, you know, her mind was slipping. She didn't remember what we had said. And what I chose to do was just to enter into her world. I wasn't going to say, oh, you just asked me that, (laughs) you know? All I said was, you, only you. And she says, oh, isn't that wonderful? And seven minutes later, so what brought you all the way up here? You, only you. Oh, isn't that wonderful? We did that every seven minutes for about the 40, 45 minutes that I was there. And every time, it was as if it was the first time, and every time it had the same energy, and every time was just as wonderful as the first time. And I realized that I was being present to this little seven-minute window of consciousness. And I got to experience it as new every time with her because I did, because I just entered in, and I didn't try to make it anything that it wasn't. I entered into her world. At the hospital, I entered into their world, at Chalk Hospital, and entered into that kid-like you know, color and, and energy, even among the sick. And then the nurse came in, and she took you know, some readings and whatnot and announced that dinner was coming. And I saw her eyes starting to go half-masked, and I knew that she was getting tired. So we said our goodbyes. But I looked right in her eyes, and I was holding her hand, and I told her everything that I wanted to say, everything that she's meant to me. And the, the place that she's had in my life. So I got to say everything that I wanted to say, and I have no idea if she'll remember any of it, but... It doesn't matter, you know, the spirit knows, even if the mind can't quite hold on. And I said my goodbyes, and I left, and that feeling, it was a nearly three-hour drive home by that time with the traffic, and it didn't bother me a bit.
You know, there is a zone that you get into sometimes if you just let yourself. And I had so much help. I had these two professionals who offered their presence to me volitionally because that's who they are. The reason that they've survived in that kind of environment, in that kind of pressure on the front lines, is because they have found a way to be able to be present. And it shows. You, you, you feel it as soon as you meet somebody like that. And they drew me in and they gave me this gift of their presence. And then I got that gift of presence again, but this time on an involuntary basis, in seven-minute slices of absolute presence. What a gift. Oh, my gosh. And I started thinking, you know, there should be a formula for this. There, there should be a how-to manual for this. There should be steps that we can take that will allow us to be able to, to learn and practice and become this kind of presence ourselves. And it should be the Bible, right? But the trouble with the Bible is, well, not the trouble. It's the beauty of the Bible, really. The, unless you're approaching it from wanting a how-to manual, which the Bible is not. The beauty of the Bible is, is that it is not a how-to manual. It doesn't give you numbered steps. It doesn't tell you exactly what it is you're supposed to do. It's like a good novel. It just tells a story. It tells many stories. And it's up to you as the reader, as the interactor, to pull out the meaning, to pull out the, the, the steps, to pull out the exhortations, to pull out the how-to. It's there. It's there. But you need to be an active partner and dig in and make that part of who you are. And so my question is, did Jesus practice this kind of presence? And how did he practice this kind of presence? And did he give us any instructions for how we can do it ourselves? And the answer is yes, absolutely he did. And it was interesting, as I was thinking about this and I was prepping for this, and I was thinking of stories to me that connected in this way, and I started looking them up, it turned out they were all in the same chapter of Luke. One chapter in Luke, chapter 5, has five stories back to back, one right after the other, that, by my lights, gives us six lessons that we can learn about presence and how to practice presence. And so that's what I wanted to do right now, is to just go through Luke 5 as quickly as we can. We're doing okay right now so far. And take a look and see how these stories of Jesus, how he interacted how that takes us through presence. Let's start right at verse 1. Luke 5, verse 1. Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing in around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake. But the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, that's Peter, and asked him to put a little way out from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come over and help them, and they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. 
for amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. So what do we pull from this? See, Jesus is not afraid to make the first move. Making the first move is one of the most important parts of being present. He had the chutzpah to just get in the boat. (laughs) Peter leaves the boat. He's washing his net. Jesus gets into the boat. What the heck are you doing? Wait, wait, wait. Just put a little bit out into the water. And he sits down because Jewish teachers always sat. They stood to pray and they sat to teach, which is one reason I like to sit to teach. And he's teaching the people on the shore. And then he says, put a little bit further out. What is Jesus doing? He's entering into not just Peter's boat. He's entering into Peter's world. Entering his world. Meeting Peter where Peter is. Doing what Peter does every single day of his life. Getting into the boat. Pushing further out into the sea. Throwing down the nets. Fishing with him. It is that first move into the world of another. Have you ever sat down with a child to play with a child? You can't play it with a child from standing height. They're three feet off the ground. You get down to their level. You sit down with them. You, you see the world from their point of view. Jesus is doing that, and he's making the first move to do that. Sometimes when I'm counseling couples, and they're so at odds with each other, and there's so little interaction, I'll talk about them. Do you know what the Western Front is in World War I? I'll ask them. You know, sometimes usually the guy knows and the woman doesn't. But, you know, okay. You know, it's when the lines were static in France and there was, a, there was a trench for this side and a trench for that side and no man's land in between and you didn't even dare to poke your head up because there was a sniper on the other side who would take it off. Who is going to be the first one to poke their head up and look at the other side? Both of y'all are in your trenches. Who's going to poke your head up? Not only just poke your head up, but start making their way across no man's land to the other side, risking that you're going to get your head blown off, risking that you're going to get shot, risking that you're going to be rejected. But if nobody is willing to be the initiator, if no one is willing to make the first move, if presence is based on the other coming to me first, which is so prevalent, especially when we're hurt, then presence is impossible. Jesus is willing to make the first move. He's willing to cross that boundary. He's willing to enter into the other person's world. Are we willing to do that? Making the first move, so important. Secondly, starting at verse 12, right where we left off. While he was in one of the cities, behold, there was a man covered with leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And he, Jesus, stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he ordered the man to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, just as Moses commanded, as a testimony to them. But the news about him was spreading even farther, and large crowds were gathering to hear him and to be healed of their sickness. What is Jesus doing here? He's willing to be vulnerable. He touched the man before he healed him. 
Do you know what he was risking when he did that? He touched a leper before he was healed. He was risking infection. He was risking being ritually unclean. And as soon as you are ritually unclean, you can't have any more contact with people in that culture, in that society. You had to go back outside the city gates until you were declared ritually clean, which is what he told the man to do. And it was a long, crazy process with the priest at the temple in order to be declared clean again. He's risking that. He's risking the criticism that will come because he broke a taboo by touching that leper. And he's risking the ostracization of being ritually unclean. All of that together. But he's willing to be vulnerable. He's willing to risk to make that first move, to break that boundary, to come and enter the other person's world, to be with them. If you were a leper in that culture, no one had touched you for as long as you've been sick. Can you imagine what that's like? Not to be able to take food from another person's hand. Not to be able to sit at table. Not to be able to sleep in your own home within the city walls. Not to have any contact. And here's Jesus who reaches across that boundary and touches you. The psychological, spiritual, emotional effect alone would have blown his mind. But he does something else. He says, don't tell anyone. He knows where this is going. He knows how crazy this is going. He's trying to keep a lid, it sounds like, on, on all the stories that are getting out. But it gets out anyway. He's risked being exposed. He's, risked, he's risking being overwhelmed, which is exactly what happens. He's overwhelmed by the crowds. They're all besieging him now with all of their needs, all of their sicknesses, all of their illnesses, which leads us to verse 16. But Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. Jesus here is turning inward. He knows when to renew. He knows when he needs to turn inward and recharge. And he does it regularly. If you think about Luke 6, this is where Luke tells us that he went to the mountain and he prayed all night long. And there are so many passages there that deal with that. So many passages that deal with Jesus going out, turning back inward, connecting with unseen presence so that he can turn back outward and connect with the presence of the people that are all around him. Making the first move, willing to be vulnerable, turning inward when he knows that he needs to in order to keep the energy, to keep the presence flowing. At verse 17, this is a story of the paralytic who was lowered through a hole in the roof. I didn't have room to put it on your, on your um, bulletins today. But you know the story. Jesus is teaching in a house. The house is full. It's, the crowd is falling out into the, the, the street. And four friends bring a man and carrying him on a pallet who's a paralytic, and they can't get in to see Jesus, so they climb up on the roof and they dig a hole and they lower him down. What's the first thing that Jesus says? Son, your sins are forgiven. What's he doing here? What is this all about? Here in this story, Jesus is embracing relationship. The word that he uses there for, that is translated as son, or maybe here it's translated as friend in the NASB. But it can mean son, it can mean friend, it can mean husband. It's a male term of endearment. It's a male term of an intimate relationship, of a connected relationship. It's the word that Jesus uses for his inner circle. 
his inner three, his inner twelve. It's the word he uses to address them. And here's he's addressing this paralytic that he's never met before. He is embracing relationship. Now, the people would have understood of that time, we probably do now to a certain extent, that because he was paralyzed, because he was infirm, it's because he sinned or his family sinned, somebody sinned. In order for this to be happening to this poor man, somebody sinned. Jesus is recognizing the quality of the relationships that this man has. He calls him son. He calls him friend. But he's seeing that these friends of his would go to any length to help their friend. Any length. And he sees the strength of that relationship and he realizes there is no sin here. Your sins are forgiven, son, friend. Jesus is stating the obvious here. He's embracing the relationship that he sees right in front of him. And he's telegraphing that to everybody who's within listening distance. At verse 27, after that, after he healed the paralytic, he went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he, Levi, left everything behind and got up and began to follow him. So Jesus is just walking. You know, he's, well, he's in Capernaum now, and he's walking from the house. And he just happens to see this tax collector sitting at the tax booth. Now, these tax booths were like toll booths, and they would set up at important crossroads in, in the trade routes, and they would collect the tolls, kind of like the TCA does here, right? How much do you love the TCA? Well, that's about how much they love these guys, these, these toll collectors, these tax collectors. He was someone that nobody would even want to give eye contact to. They want to avoid... You know, they'd go around other fields to try to avoid hitting those tax booths. But here he is. Jesus is being actively aware as he looks at him. The text just says he noticed him. But what a notice that must have been, huh? He looks into him. He sees him. He sees who he is and he sees what he's doing. But he sees that this student is ready. He sees that this person is ready for something completely different. And he calls him. Imagine that kind of presence, that kind of awareness. Have you ever had a conversation? Have you ever met someone when they look at you, it looks like they're looking right through you? They see into you? Have you ever had that experience? It can be kind of uncomfortable, but it's kind of amazing at the same time. I would imagine that if we were able to go back and... and time machine and talk to Jesus, that he would have that kind of presence. He would have that ability to just look inside us and see what other people miss. Just a tax collector, someone to be avoided, someone to be ostracized. And Jesus says, follow me. Amazing to be actively aware. There's another story of Jesus. He's walking through another crowd to go heal a administrator's daughter. And suddenly he wheels around and he says, who touched me? And there was a woman who had a hemorrhage for years. And she thought, if I can just get close enough through the crowd and just touch the hem of his garment, then I can be cured. And he wheels around and who touched me? And it's like, are you crazy? Everybody's touching you. Look at this crowd around you. But to be actively aware, to be focused like a laser on everything that's happening, to be aware of what's happening over here, 
This is Jesus. We usually write that off as some kind of miracle that he miraculously knew, but maybe it's just a function of presence. This amazing presence that Jesus had developed with his Father, with everything that is going on in his life around him. The next phrase at uh, verse 29, And Levi gave him a big reception (laughs) in his house. And there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and the sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so here's Jesus simply taking time. Levi, come follow me. I'm aware of you. I see you. Come on, let's go. Levi wants to throw him a party. Okay, let's go. Let's eat. Let's sit down. Let's talk. In that culture, to sit at a table with someone, to have a meal with someone, was like signing a pact with them, a treaty. It was, it was creating a tie that binds between people. And he's sitting with these people that stand so far outside the law. Again, he's risking that vulnerability. He's risking that criticism and ostracization. He's making another move into their world. It's all about moving into their world. And you see Jesus doing it over and over again, making the first move, willing to be vulnerable, turning inward, embracing relationship, being actively aware, and just taking time. Remember the story of Zacchaeus? Little short Zacchaeus? You know, another tax collector. And as the crowd is coming through his town, he wants to catch sight of Jesus, so he climbs a tree so he can see. And Jesus says, Zacchaeus, come down from there. I'm going to have dinner with you tonight. Here he is again, actively aware, embracing relationship, making the first move, and taking the time to just sit and be unhurried. Even if you've got an appointment in an hour, you feel completely unhurried like those two professionals did at Chalk with me. They knew they had a meeting in an hour. They didn't make me feel like they had a meeting in an hour. We were just sitting and talking until it was time to do something else. What a lesson that is. Can I do that? Even when I know time is short, can I be so present and unhurried that the person is completely at ease as if I've got all day with them until we have to do something else? What a concept. Here's Jesus doing exactly that, taking the time. And so all of these six little bits, I believe it's there. You can glean it out. You can disagree with me. You can come up with another six. It's fine. But read the text this way. Read between the lines this way. Give yourself permission to interpret the scripture. Let it live with you. Put yourself in that position Go into it like a movie. What does it feel like? What's happening here? If I were in this position, what would it that I would have to do? What would I be afraid of? What would offend me? What are all the the decisions that I'd be making at this time? But here, to make the first move, to be willing to be vulnerable, turning inward and renewing at intervals, embracing relationship, being actively aware, and taking time unhurried time with people. These are the actions that Jesus is taking in practicing presence with everyone who's around him. And these are the ways that we can practice presence too. If you think about them and think about what you're doing, listening, really seeing what's going on, willing to make the first move.
It all really comes down to, if you want to boil it all down and make it simple, because that's what I like to do, it's about entering the other person's world, moving into their space, getting to their eye level and their point of view. Because without that, no connection takes place. Without that, no presence takes place. And it's not just the person, but it can be just the circumstances or the moment that you're in. Just being present, moving into the space, whatever it happens to be, even if you're alone, makes all the difference in how you will experience and later how you will express the attitude that you have. The magic totally happens when we just slow down, calm down, and really see what is right in front of us. And to make those vivid memories where you can just close your eyes and you can see them again. I wanted to end with a little story that I wrote about. And this was, wow, getting to be 12 years ago when uh, our son Brennan was only two years old. I took my two-year-old son on a walk through a nature reserve near our house one Sunday afternoon. Couched way down in the sling of the stroller, he looked small and far away. All I could see of him was the wind ruffling through the fine hair on the top of his head as I alternately watched the landscape and the footpath, making sure that I was guiding the wheels over the safest and smoothest route. Moving deeper into the hills, the path narrowed as mustard plants overgrew along the sides, rising chest and neck high, covered with their tiny flowers. I could see the path curving off, disappearing into overgrowth, and then reappearing farther down the hill. In the middle distance below us, there were housing tracks, the parking lot, a road alive with traffic, and in the far distant mountains as a backdrop, all the familiar sights and sounds of my world aligned in a comforting glance. The path had grown narrow enough that the stroller was now parting the mustard stalks as we pushed through, and as I looked down at my son, I realized that he had gone unnaturally quiet and still. I could sense his focus and concentration right through the top of his head and looked down the path toward what may have been holding his attention when a sudden thought struck me. I bent way down, almost doubled over, and held my face at the same level as his, continuing to push through what magically had changed from mustard bushes to tall trees with their yellow tops high over my head. The whole scene instantly transformed from a narrow footpath on a nearby hill to a mysterious road deep in the forest. We could have been hundreds of miles from the nearest sign of anything that seemed familiar and safe. I could imagine we were traveling a hobbit road through Middle Earth that horses with armored riders would come thundering around the next curve at any moment, filling the scene with flying clumps of earth, flared nostrils, and the glint of hardened metal. By simply lowering my position, I had left the world with which I was so familiar and comfortable and had entered a new one, the world of my child, a world viewed from only three feet off the ground where even a rutted footpath could hold any promise or possibility. I had been given just a glimpse of whatever it was my boy was seeing in all its newness and mystery, but it was enough to begin to understand. Being reborn tears us from everything we know and think we understand. 
It takes us from all the comforting and familiar things we have piled up around ourselves in the effort to feel bounded and held and in control. It seems to require so much of us, so much loss, that we resist as long as we can. But rebirth doesn't take from us anything we actually possess and offers back everything we already do. If we can find our way not to simply give up, stop resisting, but to truly surrender, take that first step, our rebirth will open the rest of the way to immense new experience full of the adventure and exhilaration of possibilities we didn't even know existed. Being truly present, entering another person's world, is being born again. This is what Jesus is trying to show us. He's using every trick in the book, every metaphor, every phrase, trying to get us to understand, to put the dots together, to connect them, so that we can see how all this works. Entering another person's world, seeing what is really there, being completely present to it, being born again to the truth that is right in front of us, to leave the world that only exists inside our heads. That world that we create with our thought patterns and move into truth as it really is, that's being born again. Entering and seeing the world as Jesus sees it from his point of view. Abundant, beautiful, complete, even if it's only for seven minutes at a time. Let's pray. Now, Father, thank you for our relationships. Thank you so much for our relationships that even when it looks like they may be ending and the pain is ramping up, that we're still grateful that we had them in the first place. We're still grateful for being present, being exposed, being vulnerable, knowing that we're going to get hurt, but willing to do it again and again and again. Help us to see that there's no life in a defensive posture. Help us to see that we can't live as you live if we're playing it safe and not risking ourselves in the process. Help us to find peace and unhurried joy and connection in putting ourselves out there in whatever way we do every moment. Father, we're grateful just to be sitting here this morning with each other Help us to overcome whatever we need to to take these steps towards the presence that you have extended to us and have given us the power to extend in return to you and to everyone we meet. Thank you for loving us, Lord. Never let us forget we can only do any of this because you did it first. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand.